0: Snuff Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Monday the 21st of June. I'm Tom Tilley, and on today's briefing, a former AFL star opens up his battle with an eating disorder. It was just this
1: endless cycle that I just got sick and tired of and I just, I needed a break from it to be honest and the people around me were really concerned and and worried and you know, that was probably another factor in my decision to go
0: and seek help. That's Brock Chooker-McLean. And you'll hear what happened once he actually asked for help. Uh, That's in today's briefing. First, it's a hello to Annika Smethurst, who's here for today's headlines.
2: Parts of Sydney are now under new COVID rules as the New South Wales government tries to contain that growing cluster in the city's east.
3: We can't drop the ball now. We have to make sure we're not complacent. We have to make sure uh, that we are complying to what we're asking you to do. Please, uh, we don't want to have to extend to further restrictions unless we absolutely have to.
0: That's the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian clearly trying really hard not to throw the city into lockdown. Yesterday she upped the restrictions. There are seven local council areas in Sydney now uh, where you have to wear a mask inside in all public settings. I wore one at the supermarket yesterday and that comes after Friday's announcement that all people in Greater Sydney were ordered to wear masks on public transport and that advice is now extended to Wollongong and Shell Harbour.
2: Three new local cases were announced yesterday, two men and a woman who were close contacts to existing cases with the total size of the cluster now standing at nine.
0: Yeah, so we're not seeing those mystery cases which is is a really good sign. Uh, yesterday's testing figures were at 24,000 and the authorities have said they'd love to see them a lot higher than that.
2: Deputy Prime Minister and Nationals leader Michael McCormack has denied his leadership is under threat. As speculation grows, he could face a challenge as early as today.
1: I've got no one having
0: called me and said uh, it's on. I have had no one say to me uh, there is a spill of foot. Well, that doesn't mean it's not happening. That's Michael McCormack speaking uh, to the ABC yesterday. So, Annika, this has been all through the newspapers since uh, the Finn uh, on Saturday. What's really going on here? Is it just media speculation or is there going to be a ballot for the Nationals' leadership today?
2: Yeah, it's always hard to know when to weigh into these ones. I heard a few weeks ago he might be in trouble, but you never know whether you're being used by players to mm. write it. So, look, it does seem there is um, a lot of discontent within the National Party. That's nothing new. Michael McCormack came into power after Barnaby Joyce, of course, left quite spectacularly, and it's never quite been a happy party since. The natural contender, of course, is Barnaby Joyce returning. He needs 11 votes in order to do so, and he only has eight that I can count. And I spoke to a number of national MPs over the weekend, and nobody can get him to more than eight. So that doesn't mean Michael McCormack is safe. All it takes is for one national MP to stand up in that meeting and say, I'm sick of this speculation, let's put it to a vote and put it to bed. And if there was a new contender, like David Littleproud, who's considered probably the next person to take over, or even Keith Pitt we're now hearing, he's a minister in the Cabinet, that might split the votes even further, meaning there's a number of contenders and they fly everywhere. So I don't know whether this will signal the return of Barnaby Joyce. A number of people I spoke to have ruled out bringing on that spill, but it doesn't mean McCormack is necessarily going to be the leader until the next election.
0: So it just takes one person in that room to say, hey, I want to have a vote for the leadership.
2: It does. Usually it's not the person who's actually going to put their hand up. They send out what we call a suicide bomber. Everyone thought for Barnaby that might be Lou O'Brien, a mate of his, but I spoke to him on the weekend and he's saying he's not going to do it. So it's hard to know how this one's going to come to a head, but it's definitely going to be a fiery party room meeting when they meet in Canberra this week.
0: The former president of Afghanistan has labelled the West's mission to his country a failure.
2: Hamid Karzai has told US media that extremism in Afghanistan is at its highest point today, even after Western forces have spent 20 years in his country.
0: Karzai says he'd still like to see the Western forces pull out of the country, but he says they've left Afghanistan in disgrace and disaster.
2: His comments come as the Taliban have re-entered dozens of districts across the country ahead of the withdrawal of the US and its allies, including those areas once held by Australian forces.
0: Yeah, it's pretty devastating for our effort there to hear Hamid Karzai speaking out like this.
2: Especially considering how long we were there. This is a huge involvement. If you compare it to World War One and two, and even Vietnam, 20 years Allied forces have been there.
0: And the first case of COVID has been detected in an athlete at the Olympics in Tokyo.
2: This isn't good, Tom. A member of the Ugandan team has been taken to a Japanese government quarantine facility after testing positive upon arriving in the country to prepare for next month's Games.
0: Uganda's undergoing a COVID surge and the country's Olympic team is only the second to arrive in Japan after the Australian women's softball squad began training there earlier this month. So... There you go, the second team and there's already a COVID case. I guess it just really depends how they control it because there are going to be cases, it's, it's how you deal with it, that probably matters most. All right, Annika, we'll catch you tomorrow for the news. Uh, Jen Fran's jumping in as we talk to Brock McLean and hear his fascinating but ultimately very positive story in the way he's able to turn around this eating disorder.
3: When you hear the term eating disorder, what is the first thing that comes to mind?
0: I imagine a lot of people think of a teenage girl.
3: Well, what about a big, strong, top-level AFL player storming the field?
0: Yeah, in this briefing, we bring you the story of Brock Chooker-McLean. He played in the AFL for 10 years up until 2014. He played 157 games with Carlton and Melbourne.
3: Yeah, but while he was kicking goals on the field, it was a very different story behind the scenes. Now, one third of people with eating disorders are male, and Brock was one of them. He was suffering from bulimia.
0: Brock, I imagine this isn't your favourite topic of conversation, but I know you wouldn't be here doing this interview on the briefing if you didn't think there was some value in it. So why do you want to share your story?
1: Uh, Good question, Tom. I mean, it's probably not the number one thing that I want to talk about, but I do get Uh, you know sort of feelings of catharsis when I do speak about the issues that I've had in the past and it's a good chance for me to reflect on how far I've come from when I was really experiencing the the depths of my issues to, to where I am now but male eating disorders are such an important issue to raise awareness for considering the misconceptions that are associated with sort of male eating disorders. I think you know a lot of people out there presume that it only affects sort of women or, or young teenage girls when I think the numbers suggest that, you know, one in three who are suffering from eating disorders are males. Mm. And that number is probably underreported given the the way that males don't like to speak about their issues or see it as a sign of weakness, you know, to embrace their vulnerabilities. So I think it's really important that any male who has had a lived experience with an eating disorder speaks up and and talks about their experiences. So we start to raise awareness, but also to provide hope to people that, you know, I'm one of the ones who got better and was able to sort of get over my issues.
3: So tell us when your eating disorder began for you. Mm.
1: Yeah, so it was probably around 2010. um, I just... Being traded to Carlton and I'd had a, um, a pretty awful first year at the footy club. I was injured a lot and I'd lost a lot of my leg speed due to my, my injuries. And the coaches came to me and said, listen, mate, we think you'd be better off if you lost a few more kilos. And at the time, I was already pretty lean. I'd lost five or six kilos off my natural weight. So I was already pretty light and pretty lean. So they wanted me to lose more But I developed this narrative in my head that, you know, if I wanted to get back and play AFL footy, which at the time was all I wanted to do, given the the circumstances I'd went through with injuries and a trade, that I'd had to get down to that weight. So I just became obsessed with food. I was weighing everything and weighing myself, you know, four or five times a day. And it got to the point where if I had something that you would consider junk food, you know, maybe some chips or some lollies or a bit of chocolate, that I'd get the guilt straight away. So I'd I'd go for a walk or I'd go for a run to burn it off. And then that quickly sort of ascended into uh, a full-blown eating disorder with bulimia because I just discovered that it was much quicker to use the methods that are associated with bulimia to keep my weight down. So And then it just became, you know, a real issue for me over the next until the end of my career, which finished in 2014.
3: Wow, so you battled bulimia for a good four years.
1: Issues around body dysmorphia, you know, now that I've learned more about that, they probably were there in the background a little bit before my sort of bulimia kicked in. But I guess once I left the game, it wasn't as bad, but it was still there. So probably I reckon from around 2010 to probably 2015 or 16, it was a real issue Mm. uh, for me. Talk us through
0: that cycle on a day-to-day basis. What was your life like? What was your headspace at the time? How did you feel?
1: It was really a problem at night time for me. I I was really occupied throughout the day. We were often at the club for eight or nine hours, three or four days a week. It wasn't an issue then. It was when I got home, and I think you know one of the issues for me was I was – such an all or nothing person that anything i did it was 100 percent of my ability or, or not at all so because i'd deprived myself of any sort of junk food for so long i would just end up going on these binges these eating binges and then you know it got to the point where every night i was going on a binge eating junk food and, the, and then purging it up straight afterwards It was almost like this weird feeling of, you know, I really got to enjoy the junk food because I knew it wasn't going to stay in my body. You know, I was eating it without sort of the guilt that sometimes gets associated with that. So it almost, that part became almost a little addictive for me as
0: well. Mm. So these are these tough nights by the sound of it where you're very much alone.
1: I was experiencing, you know, depression at the time. I was experiencing um, anxiety at the time. So the three of them are very closely sort of interlinked with getting trapped in those consistent thought loops in your head that you can't seem to break out of. So, you know, a lot of the time, you know, I was living with a couple of housemates when it first sort of started and, you know, straight after dinner, I'd go straight up to my room and just isolate Mm. myself because, you know, I wanted to binge and eat up there, but also I just wanted to be on my own and isolate myself given, you know, what was going on in my head and the the sort of the mental health issues I was
0: experiencing at the time as well. So, we know that people in this Situation with these kind of eating disorders are more likely to tank their own lives. Did you think about suicide? Did it get that dark for you?
1: I started having suicidal thoughts probably around 2011. And to be honest, I don't think it was more so associated with or because of my eating disorder. I think my depression at the time was probably the real cause of those suicidal thoughts.
3: Brock, did you ever tell anyone about what you were going through or did you keep it to yourself?
1: No, I grew up in a very old school family, very blue collar, and, you know, it was drummed into us as kids. That you never complained, and in particularly being a boy, you know, you, you never showed your emotions and, you know, real men don't cry. and Whatever problems arose, you just sort of shut up and worked through them and got over it as quickly as possible. So for me, I grew up with that attitude, and I saw it as a huge sign of, of weakness to go and speak to someone or to ask for help or to let someone in know on, you know, how badly I was struggling. Anyone who's experiencing any sort of mental health issues or eating disorder, trust me when I say this, the moment you speak up and ask for help, it's amazing the feeling um, you get from that because it's just, you're opening yourself up to someone, you're building social connection and you're embracing your vulnerabilities, which is a huge sign of strength and not weakness. Yeah.
3: Jock, what was this like for you going through this as an AFL player? Because, you know, we look at AFL players and they're really fit, they're really strong, they look like they're on top of things in their life, but you were going through, you know, this really dark time while appearing like you had it all together. What was that like for you being in that environment?
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, I had this, you know, this sort of warped perception that, you know, because I was an AFL footballer and, you know, at times I was in the leadership group at the footy club, that I had to be this perfect human being and everything that I did had to be perfect. So it was just this constant pressure on myself to be perceived as this person who, who didn't make mistakes or, or didn't have weakness or had to attain perfection in everything that I did and it was just this awful period of, you know, in particularly of how I treated myself as well. I had this awful relationship with myself and, you know, I almost bought into the perception as well that, you know, that footballers shouldn't be depressed or shouldn't have their issues because, you know, really what have they got to complain about? And I used to dismiss a lot of my issues because I'd say, you know what, there are worse people off out there and I'd use the word perspective, But you know, in, in hindsight perspective should be, you know, use when you, you know, you're whinging about, oh, you know, I don't have the nicest car or the nicest house or something sort of, you know, material or trivial where, you know, I was experiencing really severe mental health issues. And, you know, to be so dismissive of that just wasn't in the best interest of myself.
3: What was the turning point for you that did make you put your hand up and ask for help?
1: Yeah, it got to the point where I was really just so tired of, Feeling the way that I was feeling, and um, you know, I was bu- abusing a lot of alcohol and drugs at the time, and that constant cycle of feeling depressed or feeling really withdrawn, and, and then going out and and self medicating and numbing myself, and then being back, you know, two or three days later, being back in that real sort of lower state of depression, and then so it was just this endless cycle that I just got sick and tired of, and I just I needed to break from it, to be honest. And the people around me were really concerned, and and worried. And, you know, that was probably a, another, I guess, factor in my decision to go and seek help. And yeah, it became a slow and long process from there. But, you know, eventually it was about probably three or four years later that I really started to, to reap the benefits of, of seeing someone.
0: So what did you learn out of this? Was there something that could have been done to stop you going through this? Was it the coaches and their, their direct focus on your weight? Was it the amount of support around you? I mean, what could have been done differently to stop you going through this horrible experience? Yeah, look, I really think
1: that um, education, in particularly from a younger age within the population, would go a long way. Like by the time I got to, you know, when I was really struggling with my mental health issues, the seed had already been laid in terms of my my attitudes around speaking up and, and vulnerabilities and my perception of what a male. What it was to VMA really was there were so many support networks in place and resources that I had at my fingertips, you know, for me to be able to access them and get help. But I just wasn't in a position where I felt accessing help would have been beneficial for my character. So I certainly think the education side of things and awareness side of things from a younger age when kids and in particular boys are are teenagers, when their brains are a bit more malleable and it can have a bit more effect on them in terms of what we can teach them and and their understanding around the issues.
0: That was Brock McLean. And if you are suffering from an eating disorder, you can get help from the Butterfly Foundation. Get this number down. It's one 800 Three three four six seven three. That's one 334673 You can also speak to your GP, who can help get you access to mental health support and counselling.
3: What a phenomenal story! And mm. I'm, I'm really glad that he's open about it and speaking up about his experiences with it. Yeah,
0: and the way he speaks about it is awesome too. And I think that was a story about eating disorders and and men and sports people, but it was also just a story about. Opening up when you're feeling vulnerable, and the breakthrough that can be on the other side of doing that. Yeah. Tomorrow on the briefing, forget the Belts and Roads Initiative. We're talking about China's uh, Belts and in Space Initiative. Listener.